Hello and welcome to LiveWire's Outlook series for 2024. I'm Ali Selby. And I'm James Marley. And unlike my car on the weekend, this video is dedicated towards helping you avoid the potholes. We'll be asking 12 fund managers to fine tune their radars so that you can avoid the risks that could torpedo your performance over the year ahead. I feel like one of the major lessons from the last few years is that no one knows what the future holds. What is the team spending the most time trying to understand right now? What's the biggest risk that you feel like is being underappreciated by the market? So one risk for 2024 is that there's a lot of elections. There's over 40 elections um, that happen in the world next year, starting with um, the Taiwanese election in January and culminating with the US presidential election in November. And in between, there's a Russian presidential election, a Ukrainian presidential election, India, Indonesia, some of the biggest emerging markets. And um, on top of that, you have geopolitics is quite fragile. You have Russia, Ukraine ongoing, and now uh, Israel and Hamas. And I feel like the market is not paying attention to any of that. We're, we don't actually spend a lot of time analyzing that because we are bottom-up stock pickers and we don't take a macro view certainly on, on elections. But it's something to be uh, wary of and certainly aware of as we go into 2024. If you remember 2016, uh, you know, there were a lot of market dislocations because of Brexit and the Trump election. So we need to keep our eyes open for that in 2024. What are the odds you think of Trump getting re-elected? No idea. <laughs> That's why we're not um, spending a lot of time on it because there's actually two things that you have to get right. Number one, you have to get the election outcome correct. And secondly, you have to get the market reaction correct. And as you've seen over the last few years, getting both those things correct is quite difficult. So we focus on stock specific risks and making sure we have a diversified portfolio of high quality stocks that can weather those sorts of storms. We're really mindful of the, the risks of, I guess, increasing government intervention in markets and how markets operate. So if you look at the, the gas price caps in the past, more recently we've had the industrial relations legislation go through Parliament. These are all developments which are adding costs to, the, to doing business for, for companies uh, listed on the, on the ASX. So when the market's really focused on margins and the ability of companies to maintain margins in a higher cost environment, these additional imposts that are coming in, it's really a question mark for, for how well companies can manage their margins going forward. So we're, we're really cognizant of those potential risks. So this is something that our clients ask us so often, you know, what, what, where is that fracture going to come from? And I think one thing that we've really identified so far is, you know, some tail risk in that private equity debt space. If you look at private equity, it's about a third of all high yield and leveraged loans. And within that, we know within the leveraged loan space in particular, 75% of that is now rated triple B and below. In the, in the 2000 tech crash, that was 35%. So you've got these private equity backed companies that have grown dramatically in terms of the debt stack. That's you know four times higher than it was at the time of the GFC. And they've got costs that have gone from 4% to 10% in terms of servicing their loans. When you look at the average, it sort of seems benign. You know, the average servicing cost is like 45% of their, their operating profits. But if you take out the companies that are net cash, then the remaining companies that are geared up, they have debt burdens of almost 85% of their operating profit on average. So you've really got this tail risk there that if rates end up staying higher and you know don't go back to the sort of good old days of, of low rates, you could actually face some distress here. And the reason it matters is because you've got the blowback on the broader economy. As a result of that, you have distress in parts of the debt market might impact higher quality companies and their debt ability to raise debt. And 
The other thing is that PE-backed companies employ 10% of the US population. So you can really see you know, a fracture that could emerge you know, in the US economy if, if something like that was to go wrong. Geopolitical risks, we think, are the highest they've been in for many decades. You look at the, the Ukraine, uh, you look at parts of the world right now, there's a lot of unrest right now. And as you fast forward into next year, President Trump is favourite to become the next president of the US. According to the bookies and according to the early polling, is suggesting he is going to potentially get in. So that is certainly one thing that we're working through right now, trying to fully understand you know, what the ramifications that, of that could be for the overall uh, global equity market. Let's talk about risks. What's the, the one risk that you and the team are spending a lot of time thinking about for 2024 and why are you thinking about it so much? Well, we think the, the market and the economy is going to slow. So, you know, it's going to be harder to push prices up uh, costs are going up and that's going to be a hard environment. So we're looking for stocks where they can continue to take market share, they can grow into a new market and just the durability is of those underlying cash flows and the ability to reinvest in themselves. So very much at the micro level. You're always worried about geopolitics, you're always worried about the big election cycles that are happening. We can't control that, but we look at those underlying fundamentals and it's about a small company that's growing, it's improving its structure in the market and customers really want to use their products. Not so much 2024, but the next few years, I think I keep coming back to the energy transition. You know, I just, it's going to be very, well, first of all, the stakes are incredibly high because we have to do it. And then secondly, you know, we just don't have a precedent for it. You know, if you look at 100 years of markets, they've done that. And 100 years of standard of living has done that. And then 100 years of use of fossil fuels has also done that. So whether or not that's correlation or causation, I'm not sure. But we don't have a precedent for moving down the energy density scale in the way that we now have to. And what do I mean by energy density? You know, solar and wind, they're less energy dense forms of energy, which means they take up more space to produce the same amount of energy. So we have to move on to this stuff. It's less energy dense. And I'm not quite sure what that means for markets, but markets basically always need perfect execution or they get the wobbles. And I think it's going to be very difficult to execute this perfectly, reliably and cheaply over the next few years. Yeah, in the oil market, it's quite interesting. That's about a third of our benchmark and we're underweight that, but even so, it's a lot of money invested in oil companies. They all trade very similar to each other because the commodity is so dominant. And what we're seeing is the uh, OPEC plus control of the oil markets weakening and uh, oil's down at about $70 from 95 just recently. And I think the risk here is that oil drops perhaps into the 50s and uh, that'll put stress on the oil companies and see that sector underperform quite a bit. So yeah, it's a difficult uh, to have such a large exposure in one component of the portfolio that has that type of risk hanging over it. Mm. But it would also have broader implications for the whole market. Yes. yes, if oil falls, it's obviously very good for lowering inflation and that's a good thing. The world's, that's, that's started to happen, but uh, we certainly need more of that to get prices to be more stable. So that'd be a good thing for the global economy. Look, the biggest question obviously is uh, uh, what's going to happen with the economy? Uh, it's by far the biggest one. And the risk is that the market is, is currently quite discounting a soft landing. And I really just want to say two things about that, sort of from, the, from an outside perspective. And the first one is, you know, in the US, uh, since the Second World War, we've had 10 Fed tightenings, where inflation has got out of control a little bit. And of those, nine ended in hard landings. So the odds aren't great. And secondly, the average time gap between when the US market peaks and the start of the recession is three months. So the market never sees it coming. It never anticipates a downturn. It always thinks there's going to be soft landing. So the question is, 
is it going to be different this time? You know, we're not macro investors, so we're not trying to make those calls. Um, and so, you know, obviously there's been a lot of geopolitical risk out there or heightened awareness of geopolitical risk. I think part of that actually, but on a fundamental basis, is cybersecurity. You know, that's an area that I think is underappreciated by, by investors. Um, you know, we're spending a lot of time looking at the opportunities there, how the market consolidates, you know, really what governments and companies are doing in order to sort of plug those gaps, you know, within the networks to sort of thwart some of those risks out there. I think the risk this year is you're not confident enough. You go into these years where it reminds me, not as extreme, but, you know, when COVID sold off, and, and, and it was the world just kind of shook and everything was down, sentiment was busted. And then you had to get back on the horse, but you had to ride that horse very quickly. You had to you know, put it in and just go because the market took off. I think there's a little bit of that this year. Where, where, I, or where we've done worst over the years is when the market's taken off. And because we can go to cash, we can short stocks. And so we, we can play defensive quite well, but sometimes you just got to play attack full on. And I get the feeling that's where we're heading this year. As the year unfolds, I think it gathers momentum. It's not the V-shape that we saw back at COVID, but that's what I'd worry about. I'm going to go back to liquidity. So at the moment, there's excess liquidity in the system. So the, the US Treasury are issuing a lot of treasuries and the excess liquidity is taking those up. Um, but there's going to be a point next year when that excess liquidity will not be able to fund those treasuries. And next year, there's going to be over $2 trillion of treasuries on issue. Everyone's focused on inflation and rates. That liquidity, for me, is the big swing factor in 2024, where I think we'll have um, a negative liquidity impulse. Um, so for me, that's the one to really watch for. We don't look at risk in terms of macro, Jimmy. So we, we are very much bottom up. So all our, all our companies, we will just be looking at the, the biggest risk for all of them is losing competitive advantage, really, and, and losing relevance to their customers. That's the thing we, we always worry about the most. But to think about it in a broader sense, I think the bigger risk, and now we're talking about markets, is that we seem to have factored in now a soft landing. So inflation, you know, long bonds moved very, very quickly. And we're assuming a soft landing. Sometimes bonds move because there's a recession on the way. Now, I'm not making a prediction, but we have assumed a soft landing. So we could get one of two things. We could potentially get rates going back up again because inflationary pressures haven't abated. Or on the other side, we could actually get a recession. So. Yep. We don't really spend time thinking about it, but that's, you know, the market seems very, very bullish in the last sort of six weeks. Yep.